I'm your host, Seth Bostead, and today my very special guest is composer and sound artist Gabriel Prokofiev. Good afternoon. Uh, we were just listening to your concerto for turntable and orchestra, yes. the second movement, yeah. and uh, this is kind of an interesting commission. Could you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Yeah, well, there was a, um, a young uh, kind of entrepreneur called Will Dutter who uh, was a big fan of scratch DJs and the whole this whole hip-hop tradition of turntablism. And he also was aware of what I was doing as a composer, that I was quite open-minded to work with other styles and genres beyond just contemporary classical music. You know, I take on quite a lot of influence of the music and the world that's around me, I think. It's something that classical music's always done in the past, and it's only more recently it's kind of isolated itself a bit more, become a bit too academic. And so he approached me and said, would I, would I be interested in writing a concerto for turntables and orchestra? And he had this DJ, DJ Yoda, who's like a sort of star DJ in the UK, and when you see a brilliant turntablist, it, you realize it's a fantastic virtuoso instrument. So I did like the idea. And then I thought, well, it's a challenge. I've got to find a way of writing a concerto for this strange instrument that you just give recorded material to mm -hmm. and um, make it a really you know, serious piece of music that's got integrity. And my solution came that I decided that the DJ would have on his turntables, on his records that he scratches with, just recordings of the same material that I composed for the orchestra. And therefore you have this kind of organic nature to the piece whereby everyone's using the same sound material. And so when the DJ does their scratching and their effects, it doesn't sound like it's coming from a completely different world and culture and it actually ties directly into the orchestral material. Great, let's have a listen to the rest of the second movement. Right.
The second movement of Gabriel Prokofiev's Concerto for Turntables and Orchestra, performed for us by the Heritage Orchestra, Jules Buckley conducting, and featuring DJ Yoda on the turntables. Now, you used the sounds from the orchestra in the turntables for that yes. uh, movement, but in the third movement, you had a more organic sound sample. Yes, what happened, uh, when I started working on the piece, obviously I, like when you're composing for any soloist, you tend to spend some time with the soloist and see what kind of, what they're techniques are you know whether it's a pianist or a cellist and in this case with the turntablist I, I spoke to DJ Yoda and he said to me that for really rhythmic and virtuosic scratching he really liked to use vocal sounds and that very much comes out of the hip-hop culture where people DJs will take a, a rap or a song and they'll start scratching with an individual word and that's probably what most people have heard when they've mm -hmm. heard scratching but I was already concerned and kind of worried about something sounding too kitsch by using these kind of classic sounds. So I didn't want to take a classic sample. He was saying, oh, we've got to use this sample. Mm -hmm. There's one sample that everyone scratches a kind of ah sound. <laughs> okay. And I thought, well, okay, let's put a vocal sound in there. But I've already made this kind of set myself a rule that I'm only going to use sounds from the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, also for the, in terms of the performance, that would be quite exciting because the audience will see that everything he scratches with has then been played or is played before by the orchestra. So I decided to bring in a bit of theatre. And so at the beginning of the third movement, the orchestra are told to just talk amongst themselves. Okay. And uh, then one of the uh, clarinetists then yawns really loudly and then they open a bottle of um, pop and drink it. And after they drink it, they make a nice kind of ah, exhaling sound. Okay. The yawn and the exhale are great scratch sounds. Uh -huh. Then the conductor coughs to tell everyone to be quiet, and then that becomes a scratch sound as well. So it becomes quite humorous, and which I think is important in a, in a piece when you're using an un unusual instrument. It's nice to sure. put a smile on people's faces, and also musically, the third movement took a direct influence from hip hop music in terms of its rhythmic feel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't try to mimic hip hop, but there's a strong influence in there because I thought, you know, you've got to give a nod to the culture that actually invented this instrument. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's have a listen. Right. Third movement.
So we're listening to DJ Yoda there with the Heritage Orchestra. He's obviously yes. the featured artist in your concerto for turntables and orchestra. Um, does he have a part? Does he read music? How did you convey yeah, this to him? Yes, he's he's got a, 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 a full part in the, on the score, the top of the score. There's the turntablist part, and uh, okay. it's, it, it kind of looks like a percussion score, I'd say, with quite a lot of writing very important cue points telling him which sound to be playing on the turntables at which point. You know, you hear that he switches through a lot of different sounds and there are certain rhythmic motifs that are very precise, he has to get spot on, and there are quite a, a few other bits when he's doing more expressive rhythmic work where there's an... I've notated the rhythm, but it's also written ritmo ad lib, meaning that he can do the rhythm freely because the turntable is tradition, though they can... Some of them can read music, DJ Oda could read... It's actually a lot about improvisation, so I kind of kept that aspect of it in, mm -hmm. which actually concertos used to be more improvisatory sure. than they are now. Speaking of which, he does take a cadenza in that movement. Yeah. In fact, I I gave him a, a, a cadenza of some sort in every movement okay. because he the turntables have can do so many interesting things. I wanted really to show each all the different techniques throughout the movements and so that last pretty much the whole last minute and a half of the third movement is his cadenza when he the orchestra are completely silent and he has two copies of the same section of the piece on both vinyls and he kind of creates these takes a phrase and, and repeats it by playing it on each turntable consecutively making the phrases shorter and shorter overlapping and mm -hmm. actually then starts creating new musical phrases out of the existing things and it kind of it's like a live remix reworking and it it's really exciting when it happens live because obviously you've just seen the orchestra play that material and suddenly he manipulates it in front right in front of you yeah now in a classical concerto a, a soloist would usually do a trill or something to indicate yeah. that he's done, ready to go back into the piece. How did DJ Yoda communicate this? Well, at the, at the end of his cadenza there, you hear he does this kind of very fast cuts on uh -huh. a brass stab, almost not that far from a trill, actually. Yeah, the, the turntable's equivalent. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that was something he did instinctively, actually. It wasn't, I didn't tell that's, him that's great. he should end it like that. And so, yeah, that's that. And then, obviously, he had to look to the conductor. and uh -huh. yeah. That worked out well. We're in the studio today with Gabriel Prokofiev, We've been listening to a couple of movements from his Concerto for Turntables and Orchestra. We're going to move now in a completely different direction, um, and that would be solo piano. Um, yeah. So we're going from very big to, uh, to very small. And, um, well, of course, your last name is Prokofiev. You're the grandson of uh, the famous composer Sergei Prokofiev, yeah. who was no slouch as a pianist and a composer. So, I mean, for perhaps writing sure. solo piano music, was that intimidating for you? Was it? Uh, it how did that feel? Yeah, it certainly was, and um, I kind of held back on writing piano music for quite a long time. You know, I loved the piano, and I played the piano as a teenager and a child. I never really practiced that much, bec probably because I was intimidated by the legacy of my grandfather being such a great pianist. I always felt that people expected me to be like a super whiz at the piano, and they'd be like, oh, the grandson of Prokofiev, I wonder what he's <laughs> going to be like. And um, so I was very shy about performing the piano. And I actually, when I was... 14, I wrote one of my first classical pieces for solo piano mm. and that was quite well received at school at the time and, and, and that was one of the things that gave me confidence to become a composer but yeah, I left it until I met, bumped into a, well got introduced to a Russian pianist living in London called Genia and she, uh, I was just blown away by her technique she, she's got the, she comes from the Russian school of piano very, very incredible touch, mm -hmm. very sensitive and so I over a th three-year period, I, I wrote a book of piano pieces for her, and I call it just piano book number one in the end 
but it, it was looking back to the tradition when when an album didn't mean a, a record or sure, a CD. Right. It actually meant an album of music. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd like to look back to that tradition. So I did my own book. Obviously, my grandfather had, has done some fantastic piano albums. The Vision mm -hmm. Fugitive, Absolutely. for example. I mean, they're some of my favorite works he's done. And yeah, that was, I mean, even saying it now, that was very daunting, <laughs> you know, to have that kind of thing come from the family before me. So I tried to just put that out of my mind and I just, just let myself go and, and wrote a book that was very instinctive. So actually some of the pieces that came out turned out to be quite nostalgic, quite traditional and less contemporary sounding than some of my work. Then some of the pieces are really edgy. There's a real range in there. Mm -hmm. Great. Let's have a listen.
Two pieces from Piano Book Number no. 1 by composer Gabriel Prokofiev, who is my guest today in the studio, Hi. performed by Russian pianist Jenia. And she has a kind of interesting connection, right? Yeah, it's really it was it was a really funny coincidence, really really uh, amazing coincidence that I'd been introduced to her by another a composer friend John Richards and I, you know, already started writing for her, wrote one or two pieces and then she said I have to reveal a, a, an interesting coincidence to you that my great-grandmother was Regina Horowitz and um, she taught me the piano when I was a little tiny kid when I was five years old in Kiev in um, Ukraine and my great-great-uncle was Vladimir Horowitz very famous pianist and uh, what was remarkable about this is that our ancestors had actually worked together and Vladimir Horowitz had done some US premieres of some of my grandfather's piano music mm -hmm. and a premiere recording of one of the sonatas as well. And so um, it was this really nice coincidence that we'd, we'd just decided to work together because we liked sure. each other's music and how we played. And then um, it turned out that our ancestors had already worked together in the past. So it was this kind of circle of right. history. And we were both in the UK as well. I mean, that yeah. was a surprise because... You know, how, quite a coincidence, really, that we'd come yeah, absolutely. done this circle. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show that features contemporary composers. And today, my very special guest is Gabriel Prokofiev. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll come to our website at relevanttones.com. In the first piece that we listened to today, the Concerto for Turntables and Orchestra, you had yeah. used uh, these sounds in the orchestra that then are in the turntables banks, so to speak. Um, yeah. And... Uh, but you also do a lot of overdubbing, and you've written a piece for uh, nine cellos, yes, but uh, the original co concept was that it, they would all be performed by the same cellist and overdubbed. Yes, yeah, that's true. And how did that piece come about? Was that your idea? Was it a cellist's idea? So actually there was, a, there was one cellist in London who I've worked with occasionally who'd recently heard Steve Reich cello counterpoint, mm -hmm. which is for eight cellos overdubbed, and he said he just thought it'd be really he really was curious what I'd do with that kind of setup. So I just you know, went for the this idea of layering one cello. In the end it was nine times. Mm. And uh what there were certain things that really interested me about the idea of having the same cellist playing it all again because you get a slightly unreal sound. And um so some influences I might take from electronic music could almost be applied there because it wasn't a physically possible mm. you know situation to have the same cellist nine times and it, actually when we perform it live in the ideal situation you have the you have eight loudspeakers sitting on eight chairs laid out as though it's a cello ensemble oh i see and then the ninth chair has the live cellist huh. and so it's kind of like a virtual cello nonette and that's quite fun and it sounds very different to just a stereo playback because you've got each loudspeaker projecting as if it was a cellist mm -hmm. And um, which movement is it? This one's called Float Dance. And it's kind of, it's got an influence from Renaissance vile music in a strange way, kind of, but also with a contemporary edge.
just listened to Float Dance from the chamber music Suite for Nine Cellos by Gabriel Prokofiev, and that was Peter Gregson on the cello. And there's another artist that you've worked with quite a bit, a percussionist, yeah. and uh, I want to talk specifically about the Suite for Global Junk and how that it came about with uh, a Fanta bottle, yeah. I believe. So yeah, so I've composed this uh, Suite for Global Junk for Joby Burgess and his multimedia group Power Plant that also uses electronics and video as well. And um, I was really keen to work with him. He'd performed at the Non-Classical Club a few times. And there was a piece he played by Zanakis called Rebonds that's really stunning. And it's for a kind of like a contemporary drum kit. So I went to his studio and I was going to do a piece similar to that. But then in the corner of the studio, I noticed this glass Fanta bottle. And it caught my eye because I'd spent a year in Tanzania doing voluntary work before I did my music degree. And um, people used to use those Fanta bottles as like a like a kind of cowbell type thing. And the Fanta bottle is unique in that it has serrations or kind of corrugations along the side. So you can use it like a guiro, you know, that um, kind of uh, Latin instrument. And um, so I picked it up and I said, hang on, look, to hell with all these conventional percussion instruments. Let's just write a piece for Fanta bottle. Okay. And so I bought some glass Fanta bottles strangely imported from Nigeria to the UK because we don't make glass Fanta bottles and like that anymore in England and they were full of Fanta and I I was about to empty the Fanta and I was just playing with it and I found that as I tipped the Fanta bottle and hit it the pitch actually changed as the liquid level changed and I realized you could actually kind of play almost melodic stuff with it and the more I played with the, these two Fanta bottles, I just found there was, there was such a range of sounds you could do with it. Then obviously halfway through the piece, start pouring out the Fanta and then you blow over the top of the bottle and you can get all different pitches. Mm-hmm. So it was really fun. And um, and Joby performed that piece a few times, but he said, look, I want I want more. I want a full, full piece because the Fanta is only about eight minutes long. And the Fanta had already got me thinking on this interesting story about how was it that a drink made by the coca-cola company then fanta was invented in germany but then i was now using a fanta that had been imported from nigeria from africa so this drink had this and this glass object had now become this global object that kind of was you know done this weird journey around the world and so i thought well i know i'll do it that i've got to find other objects that also do these strange global journeys these objects that have almost lost their country of origin because they become so global. And, you know, this is an interesting phenomenon that's just happening in the last 50 years, 50 to 100 years. And another object I chose that was obvious was the oil drum because mm-hmm. that's that's everywhere. And I guess country of origin might be USA, but now you just wouldn't know. The oil drums are... And people use them for different objects everywhere. But I I found a, a completely untouched, just a well, reconditioned, brand-new oil drum that was just empty and it just made a fantastic sound, like a big gong. Mm. And that was a metal object and a glass Fanta bottle. So I thought, well, nice to have a wood object. So I chose a wooden pallet for that because, again, that's wooden pallets just travel the world. Mm -hmm. And finally, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a plastic object, a plastic bag? And actually, that did have sonic possibilities, though at first it sounded like a joke. Either you're crunching it very close to the microphone, it makes all these crispy sounds, but then you can blow it up like a balloon, and when you tap it next to a microphone, it's got a nice deep bass sound. Mm-hmm. So there's, it, it turned out that I kind of I chose these four objects that actually had a really interesting and contrasting range of mm-hmm. sonorities. Great. Well, I want to listen to some of this, uh, mm. definitely. Maybe let's, uh, should we start with the oil drum? Yeah, it's let's one of your, your favorite yeah. objects, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful sound. Thank you. 
A piece called Engine Multiplier, part of a suite called Import Export and subtitled Suite for Global Junk. That was the oil drum performed there by Powerplant. Uh, I am very curious about the other sounds that you used, uh, the Fanta bottle, mm. the wooden pallet, and uh, the plastic bag. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, let's, let's give a listen to the Fanta bottle. the piece on just a little bit to the part where percussionist Joby Burgess opens the Fanta bottle, drinks a little bit, and is able to produce different pitches by blowing over the top of it. Let's move on to the palette, the wooden palette, which has a bit of a story. Yeah, well, each movement has the kind of explores what could be the story behind each object. Maybe it's the voyages it's been on or where it comes from. So the wooden palette starts with these kind of banging sounds that are kind of inspired by perhaps someone chopping down the tree that then mm-hmm. became this wooden palette. And then as it develops, it gets more and more musical and becomes actually starts to sound like a xylophone, really. And it okay. becomes like this sort of, or I should say marimba. It becomes like a marimba sort of melodic mm-hmm. material. Let's hear that progression.
I'm especially curious to hear what you do with the plastic bag. I think it would take a, a fair amount of imagination to uh, make musical sounds from it. Well, it was really fun. It was, it was a pleasant surprise because when I chose to do one movement for a plastic bag, it was almost a joke. But um, I remembered hitting balloons by my ear when I was a child and how that made a nice bass sound. And you, so you put the plastic bag, you blow it up and twist the end like a balloon and then you tap it by the mic and it's got this great bass. And if the percussionist squeezes it a bit more, that can change the pitch. So you actually can kind of create a kind of bass line. You don't have exact control, but it, there's a real, real range there. And then you can rub, wet your finger and rub it against mm. the skin and you can get all these squeaking sounds. Mm. I mean, it, it's actually a lot of fun. Musical sounds from repurposed objects, uh, specifically objects that travel the world on a perhaps futile <laughs> um, journey. Hmm. Uh, the Import-Export, the subtitle The Suite for Global Junk by composer Gabriel Prokofiev, performed by Powerplant, which is the multimedia project of percussionist Joby Burgess. But the last thing we're going to listen to today is uh, String Quartet Number 2. And um, I mean, the string quartet is uh, an important part of any composer's output. We know this for Shostakovich, it was where he put his all his most personal yes. ideas. You know, we say that Beethoven really developed the string quartet beyond Haydn's wildest imaginings. And so for many composers, the string quartet is a big part of their output. And for you, it's particularly uh, you're particularly drawn to it, I think. Yeah, why is that? Definitely. Am. I mean, um, there are several different reasons. One of the main ones is that in a string quartet, you have four musicians who have a very, very intimate relationship and who know each other incredibly well. And so you kind of, anything you give to a string quartet, you're guaranteed that there's going to be this intimacy and this, mm-hmm. this real energy, human energy. And it is like kind of miniature orchestra in the fact that you've got the, the full range and the violins, the viola and the cello. And um, also the other thing that really attracts me to it is the incredible range of sounds you can get from a string quartet. You know, Beethoven took what Haydn was doing to another level. And then in the 20th century, and now the 21st century, composers have just taken the sounds of the quartet just to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of fun with that. You know, doing all different effects with hitting the bow against the strings and different harmonic effects, tapping the fingerboard, you'll hear that in the second movement, mm-hmm. different ways of playing near the bridge, white noise playing on the bridge, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, playing on the wood of the instrument. And also just using the beautiful lyrical tone of the mm-hmm. string instrument. So it's such a rich area. You know, I, I, I've done three quartets. I'm desperate to do the fourth, the fifth. You know, <laughs> I just want to keep going. And also on a, a, another note that for me, I guess, means quite a lot is my grandfather only wrote two string quartets, two excellent string quartets. But actually, it wasn't an area he worked on that much. And so I feel like there's a kind of a little space there for me to to really go go for the string quartet as one of my main main mediums it kind of gives my little niche so yeah absolutely added appeal to it great well we're going to listen to movements two and three from string quartet number two performed by the elysian quartet
That was movements two and three of String Quartet Number no. 2 by Gabriel Prokofiev, my guest today on Relevant Tones, and that was performed by the Elysian Quartet. And I just want to say one more time that um, everything we've heard today is uh, available on the website for your label, which is nonclassical.co.uk, and uh, you have a blog at gabrielprokofiev.com as well. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for composing. Thank you for bringing music to uh, a wider audience. And thanks so much for coming in today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT. For more information about the program and the artists we've featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. This weekly series is made possible by the generous support of Grobner Capital Management, Carol Joins and Abby O'Neill, and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bostead, and thank you very much for listening.